Hello, listeners. Welcome to Out of the Box with your host, Jonathan Russo. Today, we will continue our series Through the Marxist Lens with Professor Clyde Barrow. This episode's topic is a Marxist perspective on Biden's $4 trillion infrastructure and family plan. Is this a socialist plan? Will it result in, as some in the GOP claim, a communist state? Or is it just the return to the way America was in the past? Government-funded lighthouses, canals, and social programs. There's a lot to discuss, including the rise of China in a recent article in Foreign Affairs magazine, basically saying that if the U.S. does not start funding innovation and infrastructure again, our future will be diminished by a China that does. But let's start with the Biden family plan. If Karl Marx was reading the newspaper today, what would he say about the Biden family plan and the state of capitalism that may have necessitated this plan? Professor Barrow? Yeah, well, I I think Marx would certainly endorse uh, the American family's plan. I don't think he would consider it as going far enough, but he would certainly consider it an important first step uh, in the transition to a more socialistic type of society. Uh, But at the same time, we have to, and there are components of that which Marxists would say help to decommodify labor, that is to treat people as people instead of just as workers or, or as labor force. But also keep in mind that, that Biden is selling this plan, again, as yet another way of saving capitalism from itself and making basic investments that are necessary to restore a, a competitive capitalist system in the United States. You know, he's selling it as a social investment. They're talking that for every dollar that they, <clears throat> that they spend on the American Families Plan, it will either generate $7 in savings in things like health care and, and, and criminal justice in the future, or it will make for more productive workers, which will generate more profits. Uh, And in that respect, it it really is something approximating a return to the New Deal. Uh, There are some things in here that that really go beyond the New Deal, I think, and they're quite accurate in describing it as the most significant new social spending initiative since the New Deal or since the, the Great Society of Lyndon Johnson. Before the New Deal, what was the role of the American government in the family plan, if you will, in promoting education, social welfare, housing, the other aspects of Biden's family plan, uh, education? What was the role of the government? Was there a big role in the 19th century? No, not at all. In fact, we could even go up as late as the 1920s, early 1930s. Government spending in the United States was about 7% of GDP, and only two of that 7% was the federal government. It was a very, very small government, and it had basically no role in social welfare provision. That was considered a matter for private charity. So when the Great Depression hit, particularly at a time when men were the predominant wage earners in families, if you lost your job, you literally had nothing. So it was a very, very small federal government compared to what we know today, where government routinely spends 40 to 44 percent of the GDP. Wow. So there has been a massive expansion in the size and scope of federal activity since the Great Depression. And, and one of the most significant of those has been the government's role in, in social welfare provision for people, Social Security and Medicare being the two largest of those programs today. But Joe Biden is certainly proposing an expansion of programs that will primarily benefit poor and working class Americans. And a lot of them will benefit middle class Americans as well. Why does he feel the need to do this now? COVID has certainly played a role in this. 
uh, people have come to realize that there are certain things that only government can do. Uh, and sort of dealing with a pandemic is one of those. The private sector isn't going to deal with this problem. But let's also not forget, we now have a, a generation of people who've grown up under two cataclysmic economic crises, the first being the Great Recession in 2008, and now another depression that's induced by COVID. But these are people who now realize that in their minds, the private marketplace is not working, it's not generating the jobs, it's not generating the incomes, and it's just created an opening where people are again looking to government and saying, you know, we need government to help us on some basic uh, aspects of our lives starting with trying to save them in COVID. What's the political response to this from the GOP? Why do they not see this as a necessity? Are they not looking at the same people, the same statistics? They're not looking at the closed factories, the unemployment, the extreme poverty, the homelessness, the opioid crisis. When they look at that, what do they see? You know, I, I think that the GOP today is what we call ideologically overdetermined. They are so blinded by the basic premises of an ideology that they can't see reality anymore. Even business is coming out and opposing yes. them. You saw there was a, an editorial by Ted Cruz chastising the business community. Mitch McConnell has done the same. So it's like they're not even listening to their own corporate constituency anymore. They're just on some wild goose chase of this kind of Ayn Rand you know, von Mises libertarian free market ideology that doesn't work. It hasn't worked. And we've seen repeatedly over the last two centuries that it inevitably culminates in an economic crisis of the proportions we're living through right now. And there's only one other institution with the resources and the capacities to deal with those crises, and that's the federal government. Okay, back to our Marxist lens. Would Marx have predicted that a capitalist class would become so entrenched in an ideology that it didn't even have the national interest at heart? Because I, I see the national interest as being at heart here. We want a strong, prosperous America. We want an educated America. We want an America with clean water, clean air. We want an America where there's an opportunity for all. These are the these are the things that strengthen this country and make this country great. Why would you take that away from people and diminish that if you really were a nationalist or a populist, if you will? I don't really understand the thinking of those that would do that. Well, again, you know, this goes back to something we talked about in one of our earlier podcasts, sure. sort of the necessity of saving capitalism from itself. You have to remember that a corporate CEO or a corporate board of directors is concerned about one thing and one thing only. That is the maximization of profits for their particular company. And they're going to do anything and everything necessary to maximize those profits. Right. What they are not going to do and what they can't do is invest in people, invest in healthcare, invest in infrastructure. And basically what government is proposing to do is to come in and plug those gaps in the market that the marketplace can't do for itself, or the phrase is to do for capital what capital can't do for itself, and in many cases won't do for itself. So while Biden's plan will no doubt be called socialistic, and there are certainly elements of that that I think everybody on the left would embrace, Biden himself does not see it that way. He is very clearly of the position that what he is trying to do is restore the competitiveness of the American capitalist system because we have failed to invest in human and physical infrastructure for decades, and we're losing ground globally because of it. 
And what does that look like if we continue down that path? I mean, Argentina was once one of the richest countries in the world in the 20th century. People in Europe, where they decided to emigrate, uh, very often decided, I'd rather go to Argentina. It's almost as rich as the United States and the climate's better. What happens if we don't continue to invest in ourselves and have a family plan? Do we become Mexico, Argentina, a third world, like sort of you know Latin American style, capitalist, rich, poor country? Well, it's not out of the question. You know, economies rise and fall on a regular basis within the capitalist system. And there are a lot of arguments to be made that without significant investment in the United States, that the United States will increasingly fall behind other global powers. China is the one that most people talk about because its GDP routinely grows anywhere from 8 to 10 percent, while ours languishes at growth rates of, of 2 to 3 percent a year. Well, you project that out 50 years, China's not only the biggest economy in the world, it's the most powerful military superpower in the world. The United States is just kind of another country. You know, it's England, it's France, it's Germany, but it's nothing special and nothing particularly powerful. And that'll that'll make for a very different world because if China is globally hegemonic, it it will impose a different world order than the one the United States has superintended for the last several decades. I really want to circle back to that China issue because of an article that I'd like to bring up during the podcast. But before we do that, can you tell us or talk to us about a time that there was real social welfare in a particular country that really was successful? Was Marx's vision of a democratic society with a lot of equality and prosperity for all at a certain level, was that ever actualized anywhere? Or is it actualized today in Scandinavia? The closest you would come to that probably would have been the the Nordic countries, Scandinavian countries like Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. You had much lower levels of income inequality, much higher wages. You had the so-called cradle-to-grave welfare state with socialized medicine, family allowances, child support, extended family leaves that were paid. And most of that is still in place in those countries as well. And by the way, if you look at the World Value Survey that that gets done every year, uh, who are consistently reported to be the happiest people in the world? It's the people who live in those countries. It's not the United States. Right. Any specifics in the Biden plan, the family plan that you like, that, that you think are really smart and dead on, and any that you think are like less important? I'll try to go through some of the lists. It's an incredibly long list. You know, it's a $1.8 trillion plan. Although I also want to emphasize that $1.8 trillion is over about a 10-year period. It's not oh. that we're going to increase the budget by that much every year. So in the grand scheme of things, we're talking maybe an extra $200 billion a year on a $4.5 trillion budget. It's not really as big a spending increase as it's being presented to be by some of its critics. But I think one of the things that's long overdue a national paid family and medical leave program so that if you give birth, you have a sick child, you need to take care of somebody at home because of an illness, you will get up to 12 weeks of paid family leave. We're the only advanced industrial democracy that doesn't have that program. You know, when I recruit faculty from other countries, they're constantly amazed at the fact that we don't have this because it's commonplace everywhere else. 
I think, in a uh, very important gesture to the progressive left in the Democratic Party. He has agreed to increase the maximum award size for Pell Grants to make college and universities more affordable at the four-year level. We're also going to see free community college for all Americans, including the Dreamers, subsidized tuition for students who attend historically black colleges and universities. So a big infusion of money for higher education. And of course, what Biden will promote that as, we need a highly skilled workforce to be a competitive capitalist country. So his argument is, I'm investing in the workers that are going to work in your corporations and make them successful in the future. So far from socialism, there are critics on the left who would say, this is just a big subsidy to capital. Didn't we have this successful returning GIs, the GI Bill? Didn't we already go through this where we said, okay, we need to have these GIs come back from World War II and go to college so we have an educated workforce? We can't have everybody, you know, start off working right away. We need to have some academics here. And everybody thought that was the greatest thing in the world. Did anybody ever oppose the GI Bill? Well, we, we did have that. And, you know, when people say free higher education for all is an impossible dream, I have to go back and remind them that it was pretty much free for me and for our generation when we attended college. And it wasn't just the GI Bill. It was the original Pell Grants or back then the Basic Educational Opportunity Grants. And also, most importantly in those days, states covered anywhere from 60 to 80 percent of the costs of a university today, they only cover about 20 to 25 percent. And in some cases, it's much less than that. So this is really an effort to try to plug a hole that's been created by Republican state legislatures that have just cut, 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 cut funding to higher education since the days of Ronald Reagan. Now, there's also some other child care things that are very important in terms of getting people back into the workforce universal preschool for three-year-olds and four-year-olds. The idea here is that children who go to preschool do better in school, therefore more likely to go to college, therefore are less likely to end up on the streets, costing us with the criminal justice system, but also meaning that women can go into the workforce earlier is part of the strategy behind this. There are also the child care credits that were created in the American Rescue Plan last year. This would be a direct monthly payment to families with children of basically about $250 per child until at least the age of five. And once again, this is to help sustain the development of a workforce, to help keep families intact, to make it affordable to have children, and also some uh, support for child care, that no family will have to spend more than 7% of their income on child care where all children combined, the federal government will pick up the difference. You know, that's not even, that's about half of it. I mean, it goes on. It's a very big and ambitious plan. But I think there's the other half of this. People ask, well, well, how are we going to pay for this? And he has a really simple plan for how we're going to pay for this. We're going to tax capital gains as regular income for people who make more than $1 million a year. That means capital gains will be taxed at a rate of 39.6%. Well, guess what they were taxed at before Donald Trump was elected president? 39.6%. So all we're doing is going back to the tax rate that was enforced for four years after it had been cut quite dramatically by Ronald Reagan. So we're only asking to go back to where we were in 2016. And that means that these tax increases will only affect the top 0.3% of Americans. So 
going back to our discussion of inequality, imagine that a capital gains tax increase of only two and a half percent on the top 0.3% of Americans is enough to cover this $1.8 trillion spending plan. That tells you the magnitude of inequality in our society. It does. And I'm fascinated by the fact that this spending plan has not been something that the Republicans have been able to say it's raising taxes on the middle class. They can say anything they want about it. They can call it socialism or communism or the big nanny state, but they have been unable to claim that it's going to raise taxes on the middle class because it doesn't. This is the first taxation plan that I've seen that really says 400000 is the threshold for any tax increase, as you're right about the capital gains tax and the millionaires, people with a million in income, how small this is. This is laser focused on the top one-tenth of one percent trying to extract some of that money back and corporations. Yeah, you know, and the interesting thing is the one argument that historically Republicans would have been able to make is that we oppose increased taxes on business. But now we have Ted Cruz out there writing an editorial in the Wall Street Journal saying, well, you know, you're opposing us on voter suppression, so we're not even going to help you on that anymore. Why is the capitalist class fighting amongst itself? How did Marx say this would happen? Because you're absolutely right. This whole Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, anti-business, anti-Amazon, you know, it's getting to be a, a circus where they can't even keep a straight face regarding what their policies are. So why did he think that they would, I, I know we're diverting a little bit, but why did he think that they would start like fighting amongst themselves? Well, Marx, Marx never saw the capitalist class as inherently unified. Even in uh -huh. his earliest analyses, he saw them as, as fractionated, that there were factions and divisions within capital, and that it either took a political party, or in this case, the state, to unify capital. And it's exactly these types of openings and opportunities where capitalists are fractured and splintered in so many different directions right. that it opens the political opportunity for the left to move in and make some gains. And we're exactly in that situation right now. To add to that, what's really always fascinated me is the you know, the Supreme Court ruled that there could be basically unlimited dark money into political campaigns, that you didn't have to tell anybody where the money was coming from. And everybody thought, I think that's the Citizens United, and everybody thought, oh my God, billions are going to flow into the Republican coffers, and we're just going to have a you know super capitalist predatory class running for office. Well, it turned out last year, as much money, if not more money, actually came into the Democrats from people like Bloomberg and some of the other oligarchical billionaires funneled all this dark money into the Democrats. And so the actual Supreme Court ruling that everybody was afraid was going to create a Republican majority forever turned out to be a Democratic boon. So clearly, you're right, the capitalist class, like the Bloombergs, themselves see that there's a problem and not supporting naked capitalism in its own way. Yeah, I think that there is concern among large segments of the capitalist class right now that the Republican Party, through its authoritarian rhetoric, its racist rhetoric, and of course, its voter suppression tactic is actually right. driving people to the left and creating dangers for capitalism because it has gone too far. And they're going to try to rein it in. They're going to use Biden and the Democratic Party as their instrument for now. But yeah, I think there are certain wings of the capitalist class who definitely think that the Republicans have just gone off the rails. <laughs> okay, well, I'm one of them. Can we switch for a minute to the article that just appeared in Foreign Affairs called sure. The Innovation Wars? Yep. It's right up our alley in a tie-in in this sense. These authors, Christopher Darby and Sarah Seawall, 
have written an article that the, the headline is America's Eroding Technological Advantage. And they just go through chapter and verse summation of how the federal government funded research, education, basic research in all these areas and created government programs like the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, Defense Department Research Projects Agency, and that 17% all discretionary federal spending, 17% in 1964 was for basic research. And that's why America led the race in biotech to the moon, military advances. You know, we were just the most technologically advanced country in the world because the government funded this education and research. And now we don't do that anymore. And China does. And they're basically making the case that if we don't go back to the innovation and the funding of the innovation from the federal government into all these areas, we will, in fact, lose the war for technology for China. And just what you said, you know, in a hegemony of of Chinese rule, we will not have the world look the same way. What's up with that and the capitalist class? They don't see this? Uh, Well, I think many of them haven't. And you're quite right that at the peak of federal funding, which was probably about the late 1970s, the federal government accounted for over half of all research and development expenditures in the United States. And it was a much higher proportion than that when it comes to what we call basic research. And basic research is just basic scientific research that may not have any practical application until 20, 30, 40 years down the road. A good example of this would be the COVID vaccinations. You know, people have been doing basic research in the mRNA for decades. Basic research and the platform for developing these vaccines was already in place because research had been funded through the National Institutes of Health by the federal government. So when the crisis hit, we had the platform there to develop these vaccines fairly quickly. This wasn't something that just happened you know, in six months, like some people seem to think. There was a long train. The same is true of things like the internet. This research was funded by the federal government that goes back decades. We just see it when it becomes commercialized. So the absolute fact is that the United States has radically reduced its funding in research, basic research over the last four decades. And again, it all starts with Ronald Reagan in 1980, just cut, cut, cut. And we are now starting to see the effects of that as the United States accounts for a smaller and smaller proportion of patents that are awarded for new technologies, innovations. And if you use that as you're indicated, no question, the United States is falling behind not just China, but lots of countries. Right. The military seems alarmed at all of this. I mean, you know, this that's not exactly known as a socialist Marxist institution. But they're very concerned that the technological edge is shifting into China and they're not going to be able to compete in a you know military theater uh, conflict. Uh, yeah, if- and you know, there is a group that was funded by this is funded by this government, the so-called DARPA, the Advanced Research Program. And honestly, these are guys who who were just given billions of dollars and told come up with the craziest idea you can think of. And we're going to fund it and we're going to try to make it work. Well, some of those technologies come to fruition many, many years later, things like, well, my God, cell phones, <laughs> you know, and, and geopositioning satellites, just the basic navigation system in your automobile came out of this. People forget we don't drink it much anymore, but simple things like Tang, you know, powdered foods, all that came out of the space program. Some of the early medical technologies came out of the space program. So all of this kind of research development, it may be targeted towards specific federal objectives, 
many times military, but there are spinoff commercializations that just have transformed life in this country and in the world. Those innovations will not be coming out of the United States 50 years from today if we don't right. restore our basic research capacity. You know, we've done, I don't know, six or seven podcasts now, uh, and almost in every one of them, you've brought up Ronald Reagan and as a turning point in, a, in our capitalist society and our socialist equation of things. Explain to me, why did it change under him and what was the force that promoted him to, why were we ready for Ronald Reagan to unwind the government's role and become an enemy? Where did that come from? Well, that'll be a whole, uh, we can talk about what he did. Uh, you know, up until Ronald Reagan, Republicans took the position that, you know, the New Deal was here, the welfare state was here, and that their job was not to oppose it, but to act as watchdogs, to ensure that it was efficient, to try to prevent it from growing larger, to root out, you know, corruption or misspending, but it was basically that we're here as guardians and watchdogs of this system. Ronald Reagan and, of course, uh, his friends in Germany and England, such as Margaret Thatcher, were the first sort of neoconservatives to sort of come onto the field and say, we're going to roll back the welfare state. We're going to get rid of it because we think it is stifling capital investment. We think it is stifling economic growth. We think it has destroyed the work ethic. And as a consequence, we're going to start to dismantle this entire welfare state and go back to what was really a mythical image of the golden era of the 1890s, right? When the titans of industry ruled the world and we were supposedly all happy. Well, Andrew Carnegie, I'm sure, was very happy, but Eugene Debs wasn't. So they just created this myth of free market capitalism, which has never existed anywhere on earth in the form that they talk about it. And to the extent that we have been able to create it, we end up where we are now with one global financial crisis after another. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's a lot to digest. Thank you very much. As always, Professor Barrow, let's uh, continue next week. Okay. Thanks again for tuning into Out of the Box with Jonathan Russo. Your input is valuable to us and we'd really like to hear from you. Please send us an email anytime with feedback at OOTBwithJRusso at gmail.com and follow us on our Twitter page, OOTBwithJRusso. This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated. All rights reserved.